are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm so pleased that you could join me today. Today is something a little bit different. You can tell that I'm not here speaking to you from my uh, studio on the west coast of California. Actually, I am all the way over on the other side of the United States. I'm speaking to you from Florida, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I'm here at St. Petersburg, Florida, where I'm at a church called Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Petersburg. And I'm here this week to teach at the Zeal School of Ministry, uh, operated by this church, Calvary Chapel Fellowship here in St. Petersburg. And with the Zeal School of Ministry, not only that, but I will be teaching here at the weekend services. They have an evening service at 6 o'clock on Saturday evening, and then, of course, a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. And I'll be preaching at each one of those services. So I'm so pleased that you could join me today. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I like doing these live Q&As whenever I have the opportunity to. And, of course, if it means that you can join me and we can have this time together, well, then it's all the better. Hopefully, our technical things are working out okay. We're kind of trusting on the strength of a 5G stream and the phone that I have hooked up. We've done this with success in the past, sometimes me even doing this from an automobile. But today, I'm in a comfortable guest house provided by Calvary Chapel Fellowship of St. Petersburg. And uh, it's going to be a little bit warm in this room because I've turned the air conditioning off. But fortunately, at this point of the year, it's not too hot and humid here on the west coast of the Florida Peninsula. On our Thursday live question and answer programs, we normally begin with a lead question, something that's submitted to us by our uh, audience in one way or another. Uh, Sometimes it comes on social media. Sometimes it comes as a question that's submitted here on the live chat, because really that's the idea. If you've never joined us before, Um, In whatever way that you can respond by leaving a comment or something in the side chat, uh, go right ahead and do it. And our moderator, Devin, will organize those questions and pass the ones on to me. We rarely are able to get to every one of the questions that comes our way. uh, And Devin tries to pick them with an eye towards those questions that might have the appeal to the broadest audience. But questions that we don't get to. We kind of keep track of those, and if possible, we come back to them at a later time. So uh, today, we're dealing with a question that came to us via email, and this comes from Antoinette via email. And this is Antoinette's question. I am baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Folks tell me that I'm not baptized in the name of Jesus. Therefore, my baptism is wrong. How can I be sure that I am right? Okay, so this is what Antoinette's getting at. Antoinette's getting at the idea that the words that are spoken when a person is baptized are vitally important. And uh, there's a couple different scriptures that this refers to, but let me give you a little bit more background. There's a group called Oneness Pentecostals. Uh, These are represented in denominations such as the United Pentecostal Church International, uh, the Affirming Pentecostal Church International, and the Apostolic Assemblies of Christ, and several other denominations as well. 
Oneness Pentecostals deny the biblical teaching of the Trinity, and they teach what is sometimes called the Jesus-only doctrine. Uh, At least that's as it relates to baptism and some other things, but I'll just call it here because many people know it by that name. The Jesus-only doctrine. And, And the teaching of the Oneness Pentecostals as regards God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is they teach that God is not one God in three persons for all of eternity. Rather, this doctrine of Jesus only, or the oneness of Pentecostals, it teaches that God was the Father, then became the Son, and is now the Holy Spirit. And for them, it's not just a matter of emphasis. They would say, that when God the Father was the Father, he was not God the Son. He was not God the Holy Spirit. And because uh, this idea teaches that God simply manifests in one mode at a time, this teaching is often called modalism. But it's gone through many other names through history. Uh, Many people today refer it, whether it's accurate or not, they just kind of know it as the Jesus-only doctrine. Now, again, I want you to understand, this is not a biblical understanding of God according to how God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. And if I could say, a very prominent oneness Pentecostal who believes and teaches these wrong ideas about God, these unbiblical ideas about God, is a very prominent man named T.D. Jakes, who's a popular preacher and author of books. Influential man, and I'm, I'm sorry that he's so influential Because uh, at this very important point about who God is, how God has revealed himself to us in the Bible, he denies these important ideas of the biblical idea of the Trinity. Now, since oneness Pentecostals or modalists or the Jesus-only people, since they don't like the Trinity, they don't like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. Now, look, if I was at home in the studio, I'd put this uh, verse up on the screen, but you'll just have to listen to me carefully read it. Of course, you can look it up on your own. I'm going to read you Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, which says this. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So again, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus says, you go out, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a pretty clear statement from Jesus, that we should baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And traditionally, Christians have used that formula, if you want to call it that, that formula when baptizing people. But let's face it, people like these oneness Pentecostals who deny the Trinity, they don't like that. They don't like baptizing people and sort of quoting what Jesus said that affirms the Trinity. That's why oneness Pentecostals, the Jesus-only folks, They take their cue from several passages in the book of Acts. 
Now, I can think of at least four passages in the book of Acts that are directly relevant to this. And, and we don't want to discount these passages. Let me read you these passages from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this is what Peter said to the assembled crowd on the day of Pentecost. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter made no mention of baptism in the name of the Father. He did make mention of the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, but he also made no mention of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 8, verse 16, it speaks of some people that it says that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, an idea there. Acts chapter 10, verse 48, it says that, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. It doesn't specifically say Jesus there, but that may very well be implied. We can say that is perhaps implied. Uh, often when the New Testament refers to the Lord, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 19, verse 5, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there in the book of Acts, we have three for sure, and maybe a fourth reference to people being baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay, so oneness Pentecostals take that and say, see, when they baptize, it's as if, and again, I don't want to put a false argument in the mouth of a oneness Pentecostal, but perhaps they would say something. I don't know what's going on with Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, but I do know what's going on in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, they baptize people in the name of Jesus and not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the idea, though. To my count, there are at least 10 10 other references to people being baptized in the book of Acts without any reference to either the name of Jesus or the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does this show us? This shows us that there wasn't a lot of importance to a particular baptismal formula. Now look, you did not hear me say that there wasn't a lot of importance to baptism. There was. And there is, and there should be a lot of importance for believers when it comes to baptism. However, there was not much importance assigned to the idea of the particular words that are said when a person is baptized. If there was particular importance to the words that were said in baptism, then I don't think you would have 10 different references to people being baptized in the book of Acts with absolutely no mention of what was said when they were baptized. That's why I think it's totally wrong to say that someone's baptism is not valid if they use the words of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Antoinette, you do not have to get rebaptized. Don't worry about that at all. Understand this. The power of baptism is not in the formula of the words that are spoken when a person is baptized. The power of baptism is in these things. Number one, it's in the spiritual reality of the cleansing that's illustrated by the act of baptism. Number two, it's in the spiritual reality of the identification with the death of Jesus on the cross being buried with him, illustrated by baptism, when the person goes under the water. 
Number three, it's illustrated the importance of baptism. The power of baptism is in the spiritual reality of the identification with the resurrection of Jesus, being raised with him, again, illustrated by baptism. A person goes down under the water, and then they're raised up out of the water. As Romans chapter 6 makes it very clear, this is what baptism illustrates. And then I would say also that the power of baptism is in the declaration of faith that is baptism. There's no denying it. Baptism is a declaration of repentance and faith. I need to be cleansed. I need to be given new life. I need these things. I call out to God for them. Uh, Furthermore, the power of baptism is in the marking point of faith. One of the most important purposes, I think, of baptism is to give a believer assurance, to give a believer assurance to basically say, I know that there was a time and place when I was born again. I know that there was a certain time, a certain place when my faith was demonstrated in the act of baptism. You know, some people come to faith without having a necessary date on the calendar that they could circle. And they say, I know that that was the date I was born again. But you can know the date that you were baptized. And that is your marking point of faith. And then finally, I would say that the power of baptism is in the open association with the people of God around the globe and across the ages. You are identifying yourself with the community of God's people. Now, these six things, spiritual reality of cleansing, spiritual reality of identifying with the death of Jesus, spiritual reality of identification with the resurrection of Jesus, declaration of faith, marking point of faith, open association with the people of God. It's in those things that mark the power of baptism, not the particular words that are said. Look, friends, we're, we're not magicians. We, we don't think that there's a spell or an incantation made over a person who's baptized. Again, it, I don't think that it really matters whether the words that are spoken at a baptism are, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or if those words are, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. I, I don't think it makes much difference. It's the same God of the Bible and Lord Jesus Christ that's being referred to. And again, I want to remind you, the basis of objection to this from the Oneness Pentecostal camp, it's because they don't believe in the Trinity as the Bible reveals it. Now, I do want to add one more thing to it. When I baptize people, which is a great joy to do, of course, because you're helping somebody in these important, powerful things in the Christian life. When I baptize people, I say both. When I baptize people, I normally say this. This is as I'm putting them under the water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. I say both of them. That way, nobody can ever question them. Well, which words were said when you were actually baptized? Look, since I don't think it depends on any particular formula, I just say both. So that if a person was later questioned on how they were baptized, so to speak, their bases are covered. So, Antoinette, thank you for your question. And please know this, your baptism is not wrong. Please remember that baptism is a material illustration of a spiritual work. If the spiritual work is real, then the baptism is real. And the exact words that are said when you're baptized 
don't matter so much. That is, they can be either or both. Look, you, you can't recite, you know, happy birthday to you when a person is being baptized. That, that's not the idea at all. But the, the, the exact form, whether it's in the name of Jesus or in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but when I baptize people, I say both just to avoid that kind of dispute, that kind of thing. So, Internet, I hope that's helpful for you. Perhaps it'll be helpful for other people, too. And I think it's uh, especially important for us to add a little bit of something of why it is that the oneness Pentecostals uh, disagree with this. With that, I'm going to take a look at my messages and see what our moderator, Devin, has forwarded to me. And Lucho, from our YouTube audience, is asking, have you ever prayed for someone who's been demon-possessed, and how was that experience? Lucho, I have prayed for some people that I believe were demon-possessed. A couple times when I've been doing street ministry, you know, evangelism, we're talking to people on the street. I've run across some very sketchy people that I felt were demon-possessed, and I prayed for them. But in those situations, I felt like I had a very uncertain result. I couldn't really tell if anything was much accomplished in the spiritual realm. There's been other situations in my pastoral ministry where I prayed for people that I believe have been demon-possessed. They did not show remarkable or, you know, kind of the classic uh, things that we think about associated with demon possession, but there seemed to be other things that demonstrated that. And I felt like I had a sense of resolution with those particular people. Now, I think that the idea of demon possession is real. I, look, I understand that we live in a day and age where it seems fantastic to people that people would actually be demon-possessed. I mean, they think, how, how could that really be? Could it really happen? Well, I, I just have one thing to tell you. Um, I, I believe Jesus, and, and Jesus certainly believed that demons and demon possession were real. Uh, I don't believe that a Christian, a believer, one who's been born again by God's Spirit— and is therefore a child of God, I don't believe they can be demon-possessed, but I believe that the phenomenon of demon-possession is real. So um, it's something that we may run into from time to time. Uh, I don't know that it's anything for us to seek out as believers, but it's something for us to clearly be equipped for, to deal with. And not only do we have to be concerned about those who may be demon-possessed, but look, let's face it, even if a person is, demon, um, is not demon-possessed, they can certainly be demon-harassed, if we want to use that word. They can be under uh, intense spiritual attack. And battling from a place of victory, they may be very much benefited from other Christians coming aside and helping them to do what it says there in James chapter 5, to submit yourself to God and then to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Lucho. Let me go to the next question that comes from our YouTube audience, Jesper. Jesper, great to see you. Looking forward to seeing you in July. Uh, Jesper is from Sweden, and uh, I'm going to be over there for a conference of some Calvary Chapel folks. Uh, we have had a wonderful time in years past coming together for a conference in Sweden, and we've had to cancel it the last couple years because of the COVID pandemic, but I'm so happy that this year everything looks great to come back again. for this. Anyway, Jesper's question is, what would you say is a good measure when it comes to asking God for wisdom and seeking counsel from trusted friends over a decision? I have a tendency to fall into the various ditches. Well, Jesper, if I think I understand your question correctly, you're kind of getting at the idea that there may be a time where we actually um, 
we sort of spiritualize a quest for wisdom and fail to take very practical steps like asking our friends about it. Or maybe we are too practical and we only ask our friends about a problem, but we don't really ask the Lord about it. And I would just say, we can do both. I don't think one necessarily excludes the other. Seek the Lord, pray for his guidance, ask God to guide you, ask those words of Proverbs chapter 3 to be true in your life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. So, I mean, I think that aspect is true. But Proverbs also tells us that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. We do need to be careful when we're asking people that we know for wisdom. We need to be careful for a few reasons. First of all, it's very possible for us to shop for opinions. Do you know what I mean by shop by opinions? I mean, you know, just like you would shop at different stores to get the product you want. Sometimes we can shop around at different friends until we get the advice that we want. So we want to avoid that. And also, do we want to avoid seeking the wisdom of friends without seeking the Lord? We want to be very conscious in seeking the Lord in all that we do. So with those things understood, uh, I think that would just be a, a thing to do both and to not worry about uh, doing one or the other, but simply to do them both. Um, and if you're going to do one more than the other, then pray about your decisions, pray about your problems. And, and yes, I would also counsel you to just say, don't neglect the role of what I would call sanctified common sense. Um, you know, I, I believe that God can guide us just through our common sense, just through what seems right to us at the time. Do you remember in the book of Acts, there's a decision that they had to make where they said, it seemed right to us and to the Holy Spirit. You know, they were using good common sense. They were trying to figure out a problem the best that they could. And they also had a sense of confirmation from the Holy Spirit on it. I think that God works that way many times. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that question, Jesper. Let me go on to the next one. From our TWR360 audience, Char asks, in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, Israel complained about Moses having brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And in Exodus chapter 17, they complain about the lack of water, saying it. Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock uh, with thirst? Why did they complain about hunger when they had livestock? Char, good question. Good question. Okay, let me just explain it to you. These ancient tribesmen and herders, herders of animals, farmers, who would have livestock, uh, sheep, goats, bulls, cows, they were very hesitant to slaughter them. That was their wealth. And their wealth increased by uh, cows making little calves and sheep making little lambs, and goats making little kids. That's how their wealth increased. Their wealth decreased when they slaughtered those animals for money or for food. So they were very hesitant. Um, 
in biblical times, at least Old Testament times, meat was a rare treat. They ate some meat, absolutely, uh, but they didn't eat a lot. And the main reason they didn't eat a lot was for economic reasons. It was taking away from their, um, from their net worth, from their assets. So kind of they had this mental block that said, this flock of sheep that I own, they're not for eating, they're for the wool. Uh, and only in a dire emergency would I actually eat or slaughter that flock or do it very sparingly. So really, that's the reason why they did that chart. Um, it was because of the mentality they had about their own wealth and their flocks. Okay, next question comes from our Facebook viewer, Mariel, asks, did Jesus ever speak in tongues? Okay, Mariel, uh, not to our knowledge, there's not a thing in the Bible that says that Jesus ever spoke in tongues. But I want to offer to you a suggestion. Look, I can't be firm on this, but it's just a suggestion of something that we can kind of uh, draw from a biblical principle, even if we don't have an exact word from the Bible on it. So I wouldn't hold to this hard and fast, but I would throw it out as a suggestion. Jesus, having access to all knowledge, was there ever a language that Jesus did not know? How could Jesus speak in an unknown language if he had access to know every language that ever existed? So to me, the idea of an unknown tongue or language was completely foreign to Jesus, and it just didn't really apply to him at all. So Mary, again, because the scriptures don't tell you, we can't be hard and fast for that. I just throw that more out as a suggestion for something for you and for all of us to think about. Just keep that in mind. Next question comes from, oh, forgive me, I may mispronounce this name. Our YouTube viewer, uh, Huripsimi, Huripsimi asks this question. What does the Bible say about disability? Are there any scripture references that can help special needs parents like me during challenging times? Huripsimi, God bless you. Um, having known many parents of children who are part of the special needs community, uh, I, I know something, just from a distance, but I know something of the great challenges these parents face. And uh, of course, my heart goes out to them. How could one's heart not go out to them? It's, um, it's something that is a true challenge. Herb Simi, I would just ask you to consider this. Think of all the times in the Bible where Jesus showed compassion upon people that would be considered special needs. ministering to all of these. And so um, I would just simply go back to that idea that we have um, these special needs communities upon which Jesus showed particular compassion. Um, and the compassion that God has towards special needs individuals shows us 
that um, he wants to equip us for compassion and give us strength that we need to endure in such things. Uh, Herb Simi, I would also remind you too how much God glories in what we might call humble service. You know, if you think about it, isn't it really remarkable how just humble service before God it is almost completely unrecognized by the world? And I mean by the world in general, but also by many of us in the church. But how glorious it is in the sight of God. Listen, I, I, I don't have any doubt. I, I speak as a pastor who occasionally I've spoken at large conferences or before large congregations. And, you know, I've, I've had the lights on me a few times. I'm not trying to make more of it than it is. But, but, but a pastor who's been out in front of people, at least on some occasions. It's strange to me how soon people go to the idea that that kind of means that, um, oh, wow, he must be specially favored. There must be some kind of special reward for that. Let me tell you, that is not the case at all. I don't have any doubt in my mind that God will see that loving parent who cared for their special needs child and loved them at great sacrifice with no attention or accolades on this earth, that individual will be way closer to the throne and have a much more wonderful crown than someone who has stood in front of a lot of people and played music or said words, even if they've done those things faithfully. I think of the um, adult children, sons and daughters, who are caring for their elderly parents, uh, sometimes in difficult stages and circumstances of life, completely unrewarded and uncelebrated by the world. But what a rich reward they will have in the name of Jesus. So again, here up see me, and again, forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. We don't have many specific words other than we see the repeated love and care and compassion towards special needs individuals, what we might call some in the special needs or the disability community um, in the, the Bible, throughout the Bible. But then we also see in a wonderful and powerful way, the way God rewards and how he particularly seems to have a rich, wonderful reward for humble service, service that is often unrecognized by the world. Thank you for that question, and God bless you. Um, next question comes from SNL. It's uh, SNL asks this question. Could wearing a cross be considered idolatry? It's mentioned many times in Scripture not to make any carved images, etc. I want to be sure that I'm not taking it out of context. Okay, SNL. I don't think that wearing a cross in itself could be considered idolatry. Now, a person can take anything and make an idol out of it. A person can take a Bible and make an idol out of that book. You know, they pray towards the Bible. The Bible has to be in just a certain position or this or that, or, or they, they can't really feel like they can connect with God. They can do it with a Bible. They can do it with a cross on the wall. They can do it with a statue of Jesus or Mary or whatever. People can make idols out of anything. So it's possible that an idol could become, but I don't think automatically. Matter of fact, 
when we see how Paul spoke of the cross and how he said that he gloried in the cross and wanted to proclaim the cross and wanted to lift up the idea of the cross, I, I think that it's just fine for a cross. I think a cross is a fitting symbol for Christians to take upon themselves, especially if they understand what it's about. And of course, what the cross is about, it's about the sacrificial service of Jesus Christ in rescuing his people by paying for their sins by what he did on the cross. It's this ultimate demonstration of God's love and all God did to restore humanity. Um, in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I think that's fine with the cross, but when you talk about carved images and such, I think most pointedly, and this is a place where I believe that there's a legitimate um, area for Christians to consider, some Christians in their tradition say that there should be no representations of Jesus. For example, anything that would smack of a Jesus movie they would say, nope, shouldn't have to do it because that is making in some way a graven image of Jesus who was and is, of course, God. So uh, there's another strain of Christian thought, which is very much alive uh, among our Orthodox brothers and sisters, who say that God gave a new aspect to that thinking by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He made himself visible. He made himself perceptible by the human senses. And so what they would say is that while it's possible to make any image or carved thing an idol, uh, they can be useful reminders of who Jesus is and what he did for us. So again, specifically, you ask us now about a cross I wouldn't exclude a cross as being something good and something beneficial. Uh, Adonis asks this question. Hey, Adonis, glad you're here. It seems to me like we get a question almost every week from Adonis. I'm very happy about that. Adonis asks this question. Uh, does Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, prove that at least some of the children of Israel must return to the land before all Israelites repent. Um, yes, in this sense, that the Ezekiel 37 vision spells out that the restoration of Israel that God promised in the very last day would happen in steps or stages, that it wouldn't necessarily happen, boom, all at one time. And so recognizing that it happens in steps and stages is, I think, very helpful. And of course, part of Israel's restoration, as declared under the new covenant, is their restoration to the land. We see this in the new covenant promises. So um, last of all in Ezekiel chapter 37 is them being born again, if you want to use that phrase of when God breathes life into them. So I would say that the uh, ultimate conversion of the Jewish people as a whole into faith in Jesus, their Messiah, I believe that that's something that happens at the very last step. And one of those earlier steps is their restoration to the land, if not whole, then certainly in part. So that, that's a great question there, Adonis. 
Next question comes from John, part of our YouTube audience. Welcome, John. John says, my dear godly mother has been suffering for a very long time. Uh, has it, uh, is it appropriate to ask the Lord to take her to be with him? John, um, it's a good question. And I'll just give you my take as a pastor. I don't doubt that you could probably find some pastors who would have a different opinion, and I'd want to be respectful towards them. But in my opinion, that is an acceptable prayer. Now, of course, we, we wouldn't do anything to further that. While I think it's perfectly appropriate for somebody to say, I don't want any heroic action to be taken to preserve my life or the life of, of uh, you know, a loved one that I've given charge over while not wanting any heroic action to take, normal medical procedures, normal things, yes, they, they should be done. But, you know, I, I think it's fine to pray along these lines. And isn't praying along these lines just a way to leave it in the Lord's hands? R really, John, that, that's what you're asking about. Is it okay for me to pray to God and leave this in his own hands? And I would say, yes, yes, that's good. Yes, that's permitted. Praise the Lord for that. And John, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about the suffering that your mom has been enduring because I, I know that if your mom has been suffering, there's a very real sense in which you have been suffering as well. So I pray that God would give you the grace and the wisdom to know how to guide things for your sake and for your mother's sake. Uh, in this closing season of her life. Continue on uh, to the next question from Andrew, from our YouTube audience. Andrew asks, is the baptism with the Holy Spirit always followed with the evidence of speaking in unknown tongues? Andrew, I would say no, it's not. Um, and, and so I, I would strongly disagree with those who say that uh, speaking in unknown tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I certainly believe you could say it's an evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have no problem saying that. That seems clear biblically. But to say that it is the singular evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I, I don't buy that. Remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples, that they would receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that it was for the effect that they would be his witnesses. <laughs> if you want any true evidence of somebody being baptized in the Holy Spirit, it would be that they are witnesses and that they have the fruit of the Spirit alive and active in their life. Uh, could a person necessarily speak in an unknown tongue? Um, yes, uh, certainly possibly they could. So I, I, I'm comfortable with saying that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and evidence of it is uh, to speak in an unknown tongue, but it is not the evidence. And, and let's also admit here too, that it's possible for someone to give a fake imitation of this. So if somebody can give a fake imitation of such a thing, then uh, you wouldn't even say that even if it appeared that somebody spoke in an unknown tongue, that at least it's possible that it's being manufactured. I mean, of course, I think that person would know for themselves but maybe looking from the outside, someone might not be able to tell. So that's a very good question there, Andrew. 
Um, so the way that you specifically ask the question, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit always followed with the evidence of speaking in unknowns? I would say no, it's not always followed that way, but sometimes, yes, it is. Next question comes from our YouTube viewer, uh, Christian, who asked this question. Could the wicked and lazy service servant from Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of talents referred to a saved Christian who's not serving Christ to the best of their abilities? Well, again, I think that that's certainly possible there, that that lazy servant in Matthew chapter 25. Let me go to that passage here. Um, Just looking it up here on my Bible. I'm going to read to you something from that passage that I think is very striking. I'm turning to Matthew chapter 25, and we're taking a look at the parable of the um, talents. So in this parable, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, calls his servants, and he distributes talents to them, not in equal measure. To one he gives five, to another he gives two, and to another he gives one. It says, each according to his own ability, and then he goes on the journey. When he comes back, he wants an accounting. What did you do with those talents? So the one who had received five talents said, hey, Lord, you gave me five. I gained five more. Here they are. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. The one who received two talents came back and gave a report to his master. Say, hey, you gave me two. I gained two. And he says, well done, good and faithful service. Now, the one who had one talent came and he said, and I want you to know, so I'm going to read to you here, Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 24, where it says this, then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I know you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Okay, I think that's a remarkable, remarkable statement. There Jesus in the story. I want you to understand the rationale behind the man's saying, I didn't do anything with the one talent. He said, look, master, you don't need me. You reap where you have not sown. By the way, that's like the power of God, isn't it? That's creative. For someone to reap wheat where they have not sown sins, uh, seeds for wheat, that, that's like divine power. You reap where you have not sown and you gather where you have not scattered seeds. It's just a poetic way to say it again, but it's intensified because it's repeated. One or at least part of the rationale of this unfaithful servant with one talent who didn't do anything with it, who did not serve the Lord as he should have, was, you don't need me, God. You're sovereign. You're all-powerful. And look, you could say that a master who has the power to reap where he does not sow, to gather where he has not sown seed, he does not need the help of his servants. But he asks for it. He expects it. He holds it to account. So we should not rationalize our lack of serving God in whatever way that God gives us to serve him. Some of us serve God by our faithfulness in the present moment. Some of us serve God by uh, prayer. Some of us serve God by um, supporting and being faithful to uh, support 
good works that are doing a good work in the world. There are many ways that we can be supportive of God's work in this world. But what I'm just trying to say is that the one who consciously does nothing because, well, God doesn't need me. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus was addressing here. And it says here, um, yes, that is at least in part that wicked and lazy servant. So take that for what you will there, Christian. I think that that's an important and powerful question. Next question comes from Luciana, who asks, uh, is it biblical to have our dreams interpreted if they seem very vivid and they're about the end of times? Luciana, um, if you have a dream that seems very vivid, I think it's okay for you to ask God, God, does this mean anything? Is this anything I should pay attention to? And if you sense God leading you to pay attention to it, then do it. But please, please, please hold it with a very loose hand. Luciana, I do believe that God speaks to people today. I do believe that God may speak to a person in and through a dream. But I don't think we should ever seek for God to speak to us through a dream. I think we should seek the word of God as it's revealed to us in the scriptures. In the Bible that he gave us, the 66 divine books that God gave us, that's where we should seek after his word now. Is it possible that God would speak to, in some way or another, someone from a different, um, uh, something, um, you know, in, in a source other than by, I, I believe so, but it all has to be measured against the scriptures. It all has to be given in light of the scriptures. So we, we need to be very careful about this. Um, but is it possible that God would seek to speak to somebody, guide somebody in and through him? It's possible. So I'd say pray about it. And, um, you know, maybe a trusted friend, but I, I wouldn't invest too much into it, really. This is sometimes a huge problem of proportion with believers. They're out running after this prophet and that prophet and this word from the Lord and that word from the Lord and this dream and that dream where God has given them a Bible to seek after. He says, look, if you want to know my will for your life, read my word. Now, I don't say that to exclude the possibility that God could speak to somebody providentially through a dream, through a circumstance, through some form of communication. But we do need to be careful with this because it's, it is nowhere near the same level. The confidence, the certainty, the assurance that we have of God's speaking to us in and through his word. That is the enduring word, the word that lasts forever. I don't know if you really noticed, but uh, up here in this corner, trying to point up to it here, I'm all backwards. Right there, it says enduring word. That's the name of our ministry. Uh, it's the name of the Bible commentary that I have, and it's keyed off of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. It's also repeated there in 1 Peter. But that verse says, the grass withers, the flower fails but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word that we can, become, we can be sure. Is it possible for God to speak to somebody in a dream or a vision? Or, yes, it is possible. But it's an entirely different category of the certainty and confidence that we have of God speaking to us through his enduring word, the word that lasts forever. 
Next question comes from Tem from our YouTube audience. Tem asks the question, will Jesus appear at the Mount of Olives and then at the Valley of Armageddon? Tim, I did a teaching on this not too long ago, and to tell you the truth, I don't really know if it's up on our YouTube site or not. I really don't know. Uh, but I can say that um, it seems to me, I'm doing this from memory, so please forgive me if I, if I have it a little bit wrong. The order seems to be as this, that when Jesus returns, oh gosh, I can't remember the exact order. I think it might be first to the Mount of Olives, then to the Valley of Basra, uh, which actually we would call the um, Edomite territory, Petra, and then to the um, Valley of Jezreel, the Battle of Armageddon. But there's a specific order of which he does it. And if I remember, first it's at Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, and then the Valley of Basra, and then the um, Valley of Jezreel, Armageddon. Again, if I've got that order wrong in my head, I think that teaching, although I can't tell you exactly uh, what it would be titled, but it would be up there on our YouTube channel, a teaching I did at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, on one of our Sunday evening services about that. And uh, it was a helpful study for me. Uh, to put those things in order. Hope that's helpful for you there, Tim. Jordan of our YouTube audience asks this question. Is it a sin for a pastor to be rich? For example, if a pastor is a millionaire, does he have to give up his business for ministry? Uh, Jordan, it isn't necessarily a sin for a pastor to be rich. Um, there's a lot of contributing factors here. Okay, let, let me just say this. First and foremost, I think it's a sin for a pastor to desire to be rich. We can't miss what it says. I think it's in 1 Timothy. It could be 2 Timothy. But it says that he who desires to be rich falls into a snare. It's a trap. It's a snare. It's something that especially those who are pastors, those who are minister in God's work, they should not desire or aspire to be rich. So that's one big thing. They should say, no, I have other things to focus on. However, it's possible that maybe somebody who has had a prosperous business, maybe somebody who's inherited a lot of money, somebody who's had research money, some pastor writes a book and it sells millions of copies, and so they become very wealthy from that. I think that there are honorable and even godly ways for a pastor to be or to become rich. But a pastor should not become rich from the tithes and offerings of God's people. In general, a pastor, if possible, should live at the level of his congregation. Now, this might mean that a pastor who lives in a wealthier community would receive a larger salary than a pastor who lives in a less wealthy or affluent community. But I think that in general, a pastor should live at the economic level of his congregation. Now, if there are other ways that the pastor becomes wealthy, um, then it's a matter of what they do with that wealth. I, I want you to remember something. Again, this is from 1 Timothy, I believe. 
the Bible does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, look, let's face it. There are, it's not easy to have money and not love it. So that's a great and, and serious challenge for anybody who has money. But we should not regard it as an insurmountable challenge. So I would say that for a pastor... He should not become wealthy off of the tithes and offerings of his people, though I think they deserve a generous salary, but just sort of at the level of their congregation. But there may be ways that a pastor receives income that is not dependent upon the tithes and offerings of the congregation. And then it matters more what a pastor does with them. Are they generous? Are they lovers of money? Do they have a desire to be rich? These are the things to watch out for. Next question comes from Joshua, who asks, can you recommend another exhaustive printed biblical language resource besides Strong's Concordance? Well, Joshua, you're asking for a... Um, you're asking for a uh, printed language resource, because the first answer I would give you is something that's not printed. The first answer I would give you is Blue Letter Bible. Do, do you folks know about Blue Letter Bible? I love the people of Blue Letter Bible. BLB.org. What a tremendous website and Bible resource that is. I recommend that to everybody. BLB.org. Now, I have a special place for Blue Letter Bible in my own heart. Oh, wow, do I? Because my whole thing with the Bible commentary would have never gone anywhere without the blessing and partnership of the people of Blue Letter Bible. Because way back, more than 25 years ago, in the year 1996, they put up my Bible teaching notes, and I found out that what I produced for myself as Bible teaching notes was helpful for other people as commentary. So to this day, my commentary still is there on Blue Letter Bible. And lots of people use my uh, commentary on Blue Letter Bible. I'm not shy about saying that. I praise the Lord for that. However, most people who use Blue Letter Bible aren't using Bible commentaries, such as what I have on there. They're using the outstanding language resources that are found on Blue Letter Bible, the Bible translations and the Greek and Hebrew aids. Now, Joshua, you did ask for a printed resource. So I would recommend two other resources for you. First of all, the Englishman's Greek Concordance. Okay, you have a Strong's Concordance, which is good. But there are printed concordances of the Greek vocabulary of the New Testament. And the one that's friendly for English users, something I used a lot before I started using more digital Bible resources for this kind of work, was called the Englishman's Greek Bible Resource. Um, so that, that's really one that I would, because it is a concordance like Strong's, like you're familiar with, but it's a concordance of the Greek words, not a concordance of the English words that are translated into Greek. Then there's also a good set that I have been um, familiar with. And I, again, I used to use this a lot more before I used more digital um, Bible teaching aids, but the uh, set the New International Dictionary of New Testament, of the New Testament. 
I can picture my set on my bookcase. It's uh, the, the dust jacket covers are kind of gold in cover. And again, it's the New International Dictionary of the New Testament. And what it does is it gives you good definitions and outworkings of each of the prominent words that are used in the New Testament. So very helpful. Um, so hope that's helpful for you. There. We're going to get to our last question here from Travis of our YouTube audience. Thank you for viewing here, Travis, and thank you to everybody else who's tuning in here now. Travis asks, what does it mean to be baptized by fire in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11? Here's what that verse is in the New King James Version. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, Travis, I, I think that the baptismal, okay, understand something of the concept of baptism. The concept of baptism is basically immersion, to be dipped in something, to be overwhelmed with something. You know, if I take a water bottle like this and kind of overwhelm it with my hand, there's some sense in which it's being baptized. If you have a bucket of water and, and dip something in it, that thing is being overwhelmed or overcome by the, the water. So it's to be immersed in something. It's to be overwhelmed by something. That's the basic idea behind the word baptized. So to be baptized in water is to be dipped into water. Sorry, not sprinkling. I, I'm not saying that there couldn't be some kind of emergency use of sprinkling for baptism, but it's certainly not the normative. It's not what the word means. That's baptism with water. Then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's like being immersed in the Holy Spirit, overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. He, he overflows you and fills you. That's the idea of baptism. Just, just like you would dip a garment in a bucket of water. It's overwhelmed. It's, it's filled to the fullest with that liquid. And finally, you can talk about a baptism of fire. Most people that I know understand that passage to be speaking of a baptism of suffering. Jesus, in another passage, spoke to his disciples of the baptism in context of suffering that he was about to be baptized with. And you could say that Jesus was immersed in suffering at the cross. He was overwhelmed with suffering at the cross. So baptism with fire would speak of the purification work of the Holy Spirit in our life, but not only purification, also purification sometimes through trial, suffering, difficulty. The fire of trial, by the way, that phrase is used a few times in the New Testament, that fiery trial, for us to be immersed in that and for God to show his faithfulness to us in that, for us to receive his faithfulness, for us to emerge victorious from such a time, that's drawing near to Christ, that's drawing near to Jesus in the fullness of his work. So I think those are some of the important ideas encompassed with the idea of baptism by fire. Uh, it speaks of trial. It speaks of suffering. It speaks of 
refining and persecute, uh, persecute, refining and um, and purification is the word I was going to use. So thank you for that. And that last question from Travis was our last question of the day. So thank you very much for joining us today. What a great group of questions that we've had. I'm so pleased that you could join us, and I hope you'll be able to join us next Thursday, same time, 12 noon Pacific. I'm going to be back, God willing, on the West Coast. Here on the East Coast, it would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. If you're in Europe, if you're in Latin America, if you're in Africa, around the world, we're so pleased that you could join us. Uh, welcome, and I hope that whatever time it is for you, you can join in with our live audience. But I know that many more people watch this on um recorded version than even tune in live but we're grateful for every viewer again if you think to subscribe click the notifications all that kind of stuff they say that it helps but you know what i'm no youtube expert i just try to do what i can do as a bible teacher and preacher if you can join me here hey if you're in the central florida area here i am in st petersburg over the weekend calvary chapel fellowship in st petersburg uh, petersburg i'll be here on a Saturday evening at 6 o'clock and Sunday services at 9 and 11, preaching the same message at all three services. And it would be a blessing if you could join us all. So thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope to see you next week. God bless you, and thank you again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.